Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. First Chronicles chapter 1, we will begin reading in the 8th verse. The sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim, Put and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah, Sabta and Ra'amah and Sabteka, and the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be mighty upon the earth. And Mitzrayim begat Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtuhim and Pathrusim and Kasluhim of whom came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Zidon his firstborn and Heth the Jebusite also, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. This is the word of the Lord. We say and confess in faith that we believe that the Bible is the word of God. More particularly stated, we believe that this is none other than the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us concerning himself and the way of salvation. God's word is, is infinitely precious. And there always ought to be a certain wonder and amazement that he would condescend to give it to us. Given what it is, it's altogether appropriate for us to covet with a holy covetousness every single word and some understanding and apprehension of every single word. We do tend to read past things. Uh, whole genealogies largely get ignored by the people of God, by the disciples or students of uh, the Christ. And part of what we have been trying to do is uh, change this, to stop reading past things and to stop reading past these names. If we give due attention, I think that we will find that uh, sometimes an understanding of these people, places, settlements, and so on add a lot to a passage. Um, there are great exegetical implications. Sometimes, sometimes the exegetical results are comparatively small. But whether the implications be great or small, every one, every single instance, is the word of our Jesus to us, and so precious in its own right. And as we seek to understand, it adds uh, interest and depth to our study and understanding of 
the scriptures. We have now, in the genealogy of Ham, come to Canaan and the Canaanite tribes. In this whole genealogy, I would say that this is that this is of comparatively great importance uh, because, of course, the tribes of Canaan are massively important in Israelite history. But if you understand uh, our recent work, um, the Canaanites, primarily through the agency of the uh, Phoenicians, were of tremendous importance in the literary, philosophical, and religious development of the entire Mediterranean world. And how important has that proven to the world? So some understanding of this is uh, it's not, just, not a small thing, but, but again, in the context of this genealogy, a peculiarly important thing. As we go on in this genealogy, there will be a great many names about which we know nothing other than the name. But that's not true with respect to the Canaanite tribes. Some of them we know more, some we know less. Today we come to Heth, the progenitor of the Hittites. The Hittites are a comparatively famous name in this uh, genealogy, just not not just among Bible students, but even among general scholars of the ancient Near Eastern world, and um, uh, probably in the in the last generation, they came into a uh, peculiar prominence in biblical studies. There was the uh, rediscovery of the Hittite suzerainty treaties. Um, and this has reminded biblical scholarship that the concept of covenant is central to the right understanding of the Bible. Uh, no surprise, of course, to Reformed scholarship, but uh, something that had been de-emphasized for a while in, in general biblical studies. So what can we say about the Hittites? What do we know about them? Well, of course, we know from the uh, genealogy that Heth, the great father of the Hittites, was a son of Canaan. So some of what we know about them is going to be uh, is going to pertain to Canaan in general. So in Genesis chapter nine, at the end of the the flood narrative, we remember that the Canaanites in general. Um, would arise under a curse, an expectation of uh, servitude. But in Genesis chapter 10, and here in our genealogy, we do see them inheriting among the other sons of Canaan. Now you need to, from the flood, uh, you need to fast forward about about 500 years but we do find that the sons of Heth have multiplied and they are in possession of the of the territory around Hebron if in your, if in your mind's eye you can you can see something of a a map of Palestine uh, you see the Mediterranean Sea there in the west 
as you move uh, to the eastern boundary, which uh, would be the, the Jordan River. It has the small Sea of Galilee in the north and the larger Dead Sea in the south. That first uh, Hittite settlement that we find around Hebron would be between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. It doesn't appear it reaches either one of those seas, but it is it is between them. And of course, Hebron is a very important uh, location. We find that Abraham buys Sarah, Sarah's burial plot uh, from a from an Hephron, a, a Hittite man. Um, the the religious picture of Canaan in general at this point is, is certainly very mixed. We do find, for example, in the in the character of Melchizedek and his his um, adherents uh, an adherence to faithful patriarchal Noahic religion, but at the same time we we have the Sodomites in their great degree of declension, and those things are sitting side by side. We don't know too much about Hittite religion at this at this point. We only know that they were on uh, friendly terms with Abraham. They regard him as a great as a great prince in their midst. When it comes to the, bur the burial of Sarah and the buying of that burial plot, we find the, the Hittites um, uncommonly courteous and kind to him. At the same time, in Abraham's family, uh, there obviously would be uh, a lingering awareness of the curse and probably even of their current religious state. The end of Genesis chapter 26, you will remember that Esau married two Hittite women, and that this was a great grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Isaac, Isaac's wife was fetched from Abraham's people, certainly not altogether pure with respect to religion, but where a knowledge of the truth uh, remained and uh, wherever the, the Hittites were in the course of declension at this point, there is no doubt that they that they were a cursed people, and so intermarrying with them was certainly ill advised. So, if we associate uh, Abraham, if you wanted to do it in general, if you associate him with about the year 2000 BC, you won't be far wrong. It's probably 1860 ish or so. If you fast forward to the time of the conquest in Joshua chapter 1, so now we're about 1450 or so, we find um, the Hittites still present in that same southern hill country. But now uh, they have taken on a more frightful aspect, and the sons of Anak, the Anakim, are in their midst. Turn with me in your in your Bibles to Numbers chapter thirteen. Numbers thirteen, beginning in verse twenty-two. 
And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ahiman and Sheshai and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Now scan down to verse 25 where the uh, spy report begins. And they returned from searching of the land after forty days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We come unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled, very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. All the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. So we find that the, the Hittites are contemplated here by the spies as formidable adversaries. And in their midst... And um, their own genealogical descent is is difficult and probably more than what we need to try to do. But um, the the sons of Anak were uh, of a gigantic stature, and their presence there seems to have had a greater impact beyond their size. They were they were in charge of uh, Hebron, which appears to have been something of a um, military and political uh, capital. They also seem to have had considerable influence in Kiryath Sefer, which was a, a libra library city, a, a seat of learning. So here you have the Hittites, considerable in their own right, and in the midst of them, um, obviously in some sort of a leader leadership position, you have the mighty sons of Anak. So the, the presence there at the time of the Israelite conquest was a, was a powerful presence. But we also see that there is a very probable northern settlement as well. So if you, if you go further up between um, the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, does appear that we find them there as well. Flip with me to Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. 
Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. So um, this gives some support to, some biblical support to the idea of a northern settlement. The land, their inheritance, is going to extend north toward the toward the Euphrates, uh, and that appears to be here characterized as the land of the Hittites or adjoining the the land of the Hittites. Um, we have, in addition to scripture, some significant extra biblical witnesses uh, to the Hittites in Syria. We'll come to this in a few moments, but but also a coupling of them with the with the kings of Syria. But it's also possible that that uh, Hittites might be used synecdocally here because they were dominant in the region from uh, from time to time, particularly strong, particularly fierce. Of course, you had the Anakim there. The etymology of their name. Uh, Hitta, fear, like they are strong, they are fierce, they they strike with fear. As I've already mentioned, they were uh, regarded as mighty in war by by the spies. Interestingly enough, we find the the presence of Hittites among David's worthies. So. Um, the very famous would be Uriah the Hittite, one of David's uh, mighty men. But look with me very briefly at Second Kings chapter seven, verse six. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host, and they said one to another. Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. So, although it it is possible that um, Hittites is just being used uh, as a general description for for Canaanites, and they're perhaps being named because of their power, influence, so on in the region. It does appear to me on balance that there were two settlements. For my own evaluation, that appears to make the best sense of the uh, of the data. But of course, um, their settlements were devastated by Joshua's in invasion. Uh, particularly in the south, Caleb famously takes Hebron from... Uh, the Anakim. But we do know also that the destruction of the Hittites was not complete. The presence of Hittites among David's mighty men, of course, but we get a, a specific reference to this. Flip with me now to 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 20. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 20. And all the people that were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which were not of the children of Israel, 
their children that were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel also were not able utterly to destroy. Upon those did Solomon levy a tribute of bond service unto this day. So specifically, in, in the list of the people not altogether destroyed, uh, the Hittites are mentioned. So I think as we, as we move through much of the post-conquest biblical history, that's the way to think of the Hittites, um, greatly diminished by Joshua's uh, conquest, but, uh, but remnants remaining. Uh, and it does appear that uh, what remained of the Syrian Hittites would be destroyed by Assyria, about the same time of the conquest of the northern kingdom, so circa 1720 BC or so. So that's a just a brief sketch of their of their history during the time of Scripture. What we might be able to say of their religion is is significantly less. Uh, we do get a reference in uh, in Ezra. I'll just read for you. Now when these things were done, the princess came to me saying, People of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Ezra 9.1 So we're not given uh, specifics but um, Ezra's negative evaluation of their religion, that it is containing abominable practices, that is related to us. What little bit we can um, pick up from uh, secular history, we do know that they were poly polytheists. It, it appears to me that they are not altogether diverse from uh, much of the general pagan mythology where, where there was some sort of primary male and female uh, deity, uh, a Baal and an Ashtara of, of some kind. But the male head of their pantheon was the weather god Teshub, and um, their state religion really focused on the sun goddess Arena. And it's you might very well associate the sun with with male deity, but the association of the sun with feminine deity is actually more common than than what you might think. But concerning the the specifics of these things, uh, their religion has largely been uh, blotted out in its distinctives and and lost to history. Now, no discussion, no modern discussion of the Hittites would be complete without at least some mention of their suzerainty treaties. And as I mentioned, this helped modern biblical scholarship uh, kind of rediscover the biblical emphasis upon covenant. And probably more than that, a, a particular kind of covenant uh, a suzerain is basically a lord. So this would be a, a treaty between a lord and a vassal. When we think of uh, most contracting in the 
modern Western world, contracts are made between equals. But the uh, Hittite suzerainty treaty was between a lord and his uh, vassals. And it would be imposed by the suzerain upon upon the vassals. And of course, that would have um, a much greater similarity to the uh, covenant that God has made with man. It is of a uni uh, unilateral imposition. Uh, but when the covenant of grace is made with a person indeed, it does become bilateral in that God, having unilaterally imposed the covenant, uh, activates the capacities of the man to respond through regeneration and sanctifying grace. Um, one unhappy consequence of modern scholarship, and, and we can go on, I, I emphasize this one part, but there are also say structural similarities between these these treaties that were rediscovered and um, the general structure of Deuteronomy or certain portions of the end of Joshua. But um, this has led some to think that perhaps the the biblical covenantal structure model was derived from the Hittites. But if if you understand the work that we have been doing up to this point uh, this is manifest nonsense. Uh, the concept of covenant was present from uh, the very first relationship between God and Adam and Eve in the garden. The covenant of grace is revealed in Genesis chapter 3 upon the first fall of man. Uh, when these treaties were being made among the, the Hittites, God's covenant with Noah would be uh, fresh in the memory of the world and so on. So rather than thinking that the Bible covenants are some sort of derivative copy of the Hittites, you might flip it around the other way and say, well, if the Bible history is true, and it is, then you find exactly what you would expect to find, that at least some of the peoples of the world had, had vestiges or remnants of uh, the great concept of covenant, and even some of the particulars of covenanting between uh, God and his people, a lord and his vassals, and so on. Um, contemplation of the Hittites uh, does occasion a seasonable doctrine. It is only through much tribulation that we will enter into the kingdom of God. So if you consider our um, uh, uh, our geneal genealogical record and then some of the history that we've considered, uh, God is going to deliver his people out of Egypt into the promised land, but the promised land is only going to be taken by war. And in this war, the Hittites, the Anakims, are particularly frightful. So frightful that the spies lose their uh, courage. And the prospects of war are so terrible to these uh, spies that they lose heart.
They lose the promised land. But God uh, would exercise his people by war. Caleb was right from the very beginning. They were able to take it. And he did take Hebron from uh, the Anakim. And uh, in the exercise of war, God would teach his people faith. The structure of, of Judges, or Joshua is very interesting in this regard. In the initial uh, phases of the conquest, there are very many miracles to encourage the people in the walk of faith. But by the time that they engage in the northern campaign, um, uh, you get reference to comparatively few uh, miracles and yet no less victory. Now they are walking uh, more by, by faith and not by sight, having been exercised and been trained up. So there was a uh, physical war to be sure, but they are being uh, trained up spiritually. Our situation is not too different. When we look around us and at all the different things that are taking place in the world, uh, our enemies are great and mighty, are they not? Tall like cedars and too much for us. This is not the first time the people of God have faced this. It won't be the last time. It is God's way with us and God has been playing. In Acts 14, as uh, Paul went back through uh, some of the cities that he had previously visited, Luke says this, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That, that is our expectation. It's part of our calling. We are called to this war. We are called to face uh, the Hittite. We ought to expect this. And we are exhorted to advance and not to fall back through fear. In uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, Paul says this concerning our warfare. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Right in this in this warfare, we must press to go forward in advance against uh, principalities and powers, might and dominion, and not fall back through fear. So. Um, when the war comes, and battle always comes sooner or later, with whom will we side ultimately? I think probably for Christ's disciples, the, the choice is no different than when the report of the spies come. The enemies are great, great tall, powerful, mighty. But are we going to side uh, with Joshua and Caleb? those who believe the promises that God has made and thus are willing to take on mighty enemies? Or are we going to side with the other spies? Consider uh, the enemies as too great simply because they are too great for us and fall back through 
fear oh, with this ringing rebuke that uh, God will have no pleasure in, in such. But when it comes and we are, we are challenged, we're wrestling with fighting without and fears within, as it were, we need to change our view of uh, the trial. We have been taught by the scriptures that this kind of exercise of faith is good for us, that it ought to be esteemed as more precious than gold. So when, uh, when spiritual conflicts uh, or material conflicts, which always have a, have a spiritual component, visit us and disturb our peace, our calm, our repose, will we, will we stagger as those that, uh, that feel that some ill has befallen us? Or will we see in this the trial and exercise of our faith, which is useful for our refinement, useful for uh, drawing us closer to the Savior, useful for drawing dross to the surface and scooping it away, leaving behind uh, spiritual gold? Will we consider these exercises of faith more precious than gold? Let us be among those who advance in faith and not among those that fall back through fear.